Thank you, Nancy. Please join me in prayer. Let's pray for each other right now. Heavenly Father, we want to pray for those among us who are weary, whatever kind of weariness it may be. And thank you that already we've been ministered to. We've been told to rest in you. Thank you for the great invitation of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he said, come to me. That's what we want to do. So remind us again of how great it is to have rest in him. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Matthew's gospel, looking at the six verses that were read a little bit earlier in Matthew chapter 11. This is in contrast, if you were with us last week, with the denunciation of the three cities. I told you last week at the beginning of the message that this was going to be a harsh message. It was going to be hard. It wasn't going to be like a real popular kind of a thing. Today is entirely different. Entirely different in that we're told that Jesus invites us to come to him. Those who are weary, those who are struggling, those who are tired, those who are even depressed. All of us can come to him because he invited us to do so. And we can find rest, which is better than a three-hour nap. He's not talking about that kind of rest. He's talking about something that is much better than that. As we come to this part in our study of Matthew, it's as if the nation, led by its religious leaders who influenced a large number of people, it's as if they decided now it's time to reject this Jesus entirely. He's no longer going to be recognized at all as King Jesus. We don't want this king. The announcement of the kingdom would still be given, but the humble were targeted now. Individuals would be targeted. The nation had rejected her Savior. John tells it this way. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. That's as a nation, they didn't. But he also goes on to say, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So nationally, the king was rejected, but individually there were still those who received him. And these are the ones who are in view here this morning in the scripture that was read just a few moments ago. Remember last week, if you will, back in verse 20, we said that this is a transition time. This is a time when the Lord Jesus' tactics, his strategy, his policy were changing now. It says he began. This is something new now. He began to denounce cities. He hadn't been doing that before. It was a day of reckoning for them. And those cities where most of his miracles had been done. They had been done, but this was part of the change. This is part of the transition that was going on. So keep that in mind as we look at these last six verses in Matthew chapter 11. Begins by looking at a prayer of the Lord Jesus. Really, it's verses 25 and 26 for the prayer. But it's a different kind of prayer. It kind of continues, not directly addressing the Father, but the people were listening. It was meant to be overheard. It was a declaration. In fact, in the Greek language, it means something that is publicly declared, not just to God the Father, but everybody else who was listening, including us today. Jesus is grateful to God that the truth about himself is attainable now by the common folks. His message hadn't totally fallen on deaf ears. That's why he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. 
Luke 10.21 indicates this was a prayer of rejoicing. So somehow, in the midst of all that is going on, and it's not pleasant because people are rejecting the Lord Jesus, He's rejoicing in the fact that there are those who are not. He's rejoicing in the common people. People a whole lot like us who were still responding to Him. And so, in His gratitude, the Lord Jesus says something here. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Who are the wise and understanding? That sounds good, doesn't it? But it's not. It's not a good thing in this case to be among the wise and understanding. You could probably put quotation marks around those words, wise and understanding. These were the ones the culture perceived as wise and understanding. There's almost certainly a sarcastic bent to these words. These would be the supposed wise and understanding. Those that the world might perceive that way, but God himself is not going to perceive them that way. More than likely, this would refer to the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the other religious leaders. It would be those who are in violation of Proverbs 3.7, Because in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So what the Lord Jesus is saying here, he's thanking God. He's hidden these things. And we'll see what these things are in a few moments. He's hidden them from the wise and understanding, but not the the intelligent, smart people. That's not what he's saying. Those who are wise in their own eyes. And we're warned against that. If you would find your way to Proverbs 26 in whatever way you use now to find Scripture in in the, the Bibles or your tablets or your phones or whatever it may be, find your way to Proverbs 26 for a few moments. It's a warning that's a clear one to us. It has to do with the fool. A lot of verses in a row talking about a fool. And a fool just doesn't mean somebody who's foolish. It doesn't mean somebody who's like a clown. It means somebody who's morally destitute, somebody who is really in a bad way, as used in the Scriptures. So here we pick up in verse 1, like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Verse 3, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkeys, and a rod for the back of fools. Do you get the idea here already? A fool is not highly regarded in the Proverbs, uh, nor anywhere else in Scripture. Verse 4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And there's that expression again. Uh, verse 6, whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. In other words, you don't trust a fool at all. Verse 7, like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of fools. So don't expect wisdom coming out of the mouth of a fool. Verse 8, like one who binds the stone in the sling is one who gives honor to a fool. If you can picture the slingshots of that day, not the rubber bands on the forks like we use today, but uh, the slingshot where there would be a pocket of material, you would put the stone in there and you would whip it around and then fling this stone It's saying, well, what would happen if instead when you put the stone inside that pocket, you sew the pocket around the stone and then you try to do it? You could be swinging that for an awful long time and nothing is going to happen. And it's likening that to the idea of a fool 
given, being given honor, and you don't want to see that happen. Verse 9, like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. And it just kind of goes on that way. Verse 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Uh, we like that verse at our house because it tells us that we have a scriptural dog. Um, but then, sobering words in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The pattern has been established here that you can't get much lower than being a fool, but you can get lower if you're one who is wise in your own eyes. More hope for a fool than for him. And that's a very scary thought. The wise and understanding, if it's because they're wise in their own eyes, they're in a whole lot of trouble. That's what the Lord Jesus is telling us here in Matthew. And he likens them. He says, it's been hidden from the wise and understanding, but revealed to little children. It's not talking about children like the ones who sang for us earlier. It's talking about something different. It's talking about the common, ordinary people the ones who lacked the credentials or the standing or the intellectual prowess, the reputation of the more elite. He's not really talking about children here, and he's not really talking about wise and understanding. He's talking about those who think they're wise and understanding and comparing them with normal people who understand that we have nothing to offer. Everything that we have is given to us, and we trust the Lord, and we do His bidding. Now it says have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What are these things in verse 25? These things that have been hidden from the wise and the understanding. And I believe these things here refers to the whole teaching about who Jesus was and why he came. As seen in his miracles and as heard in his teaching and in his preaching. These things that Jesus brought, these things that Jesus offered... These are the things that are in view that have been hidden from the wise and the understanding and have been revealed to the common people just like most of us are. Another way of putting it is that these things refer to the kingdom that Jesus had been announcing. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord Jesus has already been raised from the dead. He will be ascending soon. And to his apostles... He presented himself alive after his suffering, it says, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. He had 40 days left between resurrection and ascension. What does he want to fill his disciples, his apostles with? It tells us speaking about the kingdom of God. One writer puts it this way, his teachings about his messiahship, lordship, and saviorhood, and about salvation, submission, and discipleship, all centered in the kingdom of God, the realm where he's sovereign, where his people dwell by grace through faith, and where his righteous will is done. So the Lord Jesus, speaking about his kingdom, speaking about these things hidden from the wise and the understanding, revealed to the little children, the common people just like us. But why did Jesus hide these things from the wise and understanding? That seems kind of mean, doesn't it? Why would he keep it 
from those people. Well, it tells us partially, at least, in verse 26, where it says, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Gracious will. That's part of his grace, why he's hiding that. And he's not hiding it from all of them. People like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they're going to find their way there. They're part of the elite establishment, the Sanhedrin. They're going to find their way. He's not hiding it from all of them. But he will hide it from those who believe that they are the ones who hold a corner in the market of truth. And the Lord Jesus will have none of that. I'd like to ask if you will turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. We've turned there recently several times. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, begins several verses which explain to us why it is that the Lord Jesus is saying what he's saying here even. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. There is a battle in the Scripture between those who feel like they know all the answers because something's good about them as compared with those who feel like we know the answers because God has revealed them. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God's going to minister to those spiritually elite people through those who aren't as important in their eyes. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, and nowhere else. You see this theme through the Scriptures. Another example, Luke one fifty three. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. So in God's grace, He's ministering to the wise and understanding through what they would consider foolish. It's all part of God's grace. God's grace is for everyone. Here's what someone has said about that. The Lord does not exclude, and this is important, the Lord does not exclude smart people from his kingdom. How many of you can raise your hand and say, I'm so glad? You can't, can you? Even if you're feeling it, you can't raise your hand and say, yeah, I'm glad because I'm one of those smart people. He does not exclude smart people from his kingdom, but rather those who trust in their smartness. It is not intelligence, but intellectual pride that shuts people out of the kingdom. Intelligence is a gift of God, but when it is perverted by pride, it becomes a barrier to God because trust is in the gift rather than in the giver. Breathe a sigh of relief, those of you that are smart. It's okay. It's okay for you to be smart, intelligent. Not okay for you to trust in that rather than trusting in the Lord himself. In Luke 10, verse 21, it says, Jesus was filled with joy through the Holy Spirit that God's salvation was attainable now even to little children. 
It's a form of joy welling up in the Lord Jesus that the little children, the common people, maybe the not-so-smart people, are going to be used by God, and he's going to use them in ministering with some of the other people. How many of you have heard of Mensa? Do you know Mensa? Okay. Mensa is an organization whose members have an IQ of 140 or higher. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you're a member of Mensa. A few years ago, there was a Mensa convention in San Francisco where several members lunched at a local cafe. While they were dining, they discovered that their salt shaker contained pepper and their pepper shaker was full of salt. How could they swap the contents of the bottles without spilling and using only the implements at hand? Clearly, this was a job for Mensa. The group debated and presented ideas and finally came up with a brilliant solution involving a napkin, a straw, and an empty saucer. They called the waitress over to dazzle her with their solution. Ma'am, they said we couldn't help but notice that the pepper shaker contained salt and the salt shaker... Oh, the waitress interrupted. Sorry about that. She unscrewed the caps of both bottles and switched them. (laughs) Understand the point that is being made. Hidden from the wise and understanding, revealed to the little children. Because that's God's way of doing things so that nobody can boast in anything other than in God. And some people learn the hard way and some people learn the easy way. In verse 27, Jesus stopped talking directly to God the Father and now spoke about him to the people. But this is still part of a declaration that was meant to be overheard. He pointed out the interconnectedness between the Father and the Son. He explained that all things had been handed over to him by his father. There's a a study note in the ESV Bibles, if you have that, that says all things probably refers to everything needed with respect to the carrying out of Christ's ministry of redemption, including the revelation of salvation to those to whom he chooses to reveal the father. So what's been revealed here, these all things handed over to the Lord Jesus are important things. Similar to what we read in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So all things handed over to Jesus, all authority given to him. We put those two verses together, more proof for the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was something that was causing trouble at that particular time with the intelligentsia. With those who would say, there's only one God, this Jesus cannot be him. There is no way this is blasphemy. Get rid of him. And that was the attitude that was beginning to prevail. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 14 for just a moment. John chapter 14, we're going to see here something even more about God the Father and God the Son being inextricably intertwined. And again, the wise and understanding are not going to acknowledge the deity of the Son. They're not going to acknowledge the Lord Jesus. And Jesus often is pointing out the unique relationship they had with each other, he and the Father, including full knowledge of each other, the Greek word epignosis, which means to know fully. So when we get to John chapter 14 and verse 7, Jesus saying these words, particularly to his apostles, if you had known me, and this is not epignosis, this is only gnosis, this is just knowledge. If you had known me, you would have known my father also, and it's still just gnosis. 
From now on, you do know him. Still gnosis, because the Lord Jesus and the Father have a unique relationship of knowing each other. He says, for now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Earlier, he put it this way, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now look at that, if you have it on the screen, look at that carefully for a moment. It's talking about God in two persons. No one has ever seen God. It's talking about God the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side. You don't want to believe in the Trinity. You've got to do something with this verse. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus. He has made him known. And Jesus is making that point. And no doubt it's because of the larger audience that is always around, the skeptics, those who are described as the wise and understanding. If they were so wise and understanding, they'd understand the unique relationship that Jesus had with his father. And then Jesus goes from there to offer the rest that we see here. An incredible verse, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the immediate context, it is the rest from the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the bondage they placed people under even to think that they could achieve salvation. They had to jump through hoop after hoop after hoop, law after law into the hundreds of little laws. And that's probably the main context that is here before us. But it goes beyond that because you'll notice the verse says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest doesn't matter what the burden is. That burden is one that Jesus wants to invite you to come and get rest from with him. So a lady by the name of Cindy Hess Casper, some of you know her, you might read her occasionally in a devotional booklet, and she talks about this. She says, as I started up my car in the dark hours of early morning, I noticed a seatbelt light on the dashboard. I checked my door, opening and pulling it shut again. I tugged on my seatbelt to test it, but the sensor light still beamed. Then in slow realization, I reached over and lifted my purse a few inches above the passenger seat. The light clicked off. I'm controlling myself. There's a lot that I could say right now that would be dangerous and wouldn't be edifying. But you've seen some purses like that where Jimmy Hoffa could be hiding. Uh, that's enough. She goes on. Apparently a cell phone, three rolls of quarters, a hardcover book, and my lunch stuffed in my very large purse had equaled the weight of a small passenger, thus setting off the sensor. She continues, while I can easily empty out a handbag, other weights are not so easy to shed. Those burdens of life involve a heaviness of spirit. Whether the burden that weighs us down is one of guilt, such as the one that consumed David's thoughts, 
She quotes from some of the Psalms where David is in agony because of the sin against God, his sin of adultery and some of his other things that he had done. Also, the fear Peter experienced in the scripture is listed there where he denied the Lord Jesus out of fear for the crowd. Or the doubt Thomas carried. Maybe some of us are carrying similar weights to those. Jesus has invited us to bring them all to him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. She concludes by saying we are not built to bear burdens alone. When we cast them on the one who wants to bear our burdens, he replaces them with forgiveness, healing, and restoration. No burden is too heavy for him. So once again, here is the greatest invitation imaginable. The Lord Jesus, God himself, one with the Father, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a great invitation from the Lord Jesus. All you who labor, (coughs) excuse me, strong word, means working to the point of utter exhaustion. And in context, arduous toil in seeking to please God and know the way of salvation, even. Heavy laden. That means at some point, a great load was dumped on somebody and left there. That's what heavy laden is all about. But rest means to refresh or to revive, to calm, to comfort. And the word yoke appears soon after. Take my yoke upon you. And we say, wait a minute, I thought we were going to rest. Uh, Why am I going to take on a yoke? Why do I want to do that? Here's how it's described. A yoke was a wooden frame that fit over the shoulders of work animals, harnessing them to each other and to the plow they pulled together. Being yoked to Christ means to rely on him, to give him our burdens, to accept the necessity of walking with him side by side. So if we're going to take his yoke, we're going to be with him. He's on one side, we're on the other one. Yes, we can still rest in him. He's the one that's there with us and will never leave us. Is Jesus referring to physical rest here? I will give you rest. I think he's referring to better than that. Because if you look at verse 29, it says rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. People can trade in their heavy, tiring burdens for his yoke and burdens that by contrast are easy and light. He doesn't want to dump everything on us. The Pharisees did, but Jesus does not want to. Soul rest is an eternal concept, not merely temporal relief from pharisaical traditions, but eternal salvation. But as always in the scripture, we're given promises and blessings for the future but they're here for the now as well. Rest of soul is eternal, but it's also right now. And that's Jesus' invitation, and it's a great one. It's pictured throughout the Scriptures, referred to in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where it talks in terms of, for we who have believed enter that rest. It's talking about a permanent thing. It's talking about an eternal dwelling. It's talking about heaven. But the rest that Jesus offers, as I said, is not limited to eternal rest. I like the way Charles Ryrie puts it. He says, this great invitation extended to all is threefold. To come and receive salvation, that would be eternal rest, certainly. But to learn in discipleship, 
we're yoked together with him and to serve and yoke with him. So we have the privilege now of resting with the Lord Jesus Christ, looking forward to eternal rest, but it's here and it's also later on. Jesus is not the harsh taskmaster that the religious leaders of that time were. Peter, at the Jerusalem Council, likened that contrast. He says, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's telling the leaders of the church, why do you want these people to go back to circumcision, to the Jewish law? Why are you placing a yoke on them? None of us could handle that. And that's not the yoke of the Lord Jesus tells us that also in Matthew 23. He talks about the Pharisees putting a yoke on the people that was hard and wouldn't lift a finger to help them. It's not the picture of Jesus. He'll do everything to help us. And that's why he gives to us, the one who's gentle and lowly in heart, gives to us this invitation, this clear invitation. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you haven't come to him yet, Do so now as we pray right now. Come to him for salvation. Come to him for discipleship. Come to him for service. Come to him and recognize that you are then among those that the Lord Jesus calls the children here. Not the wise and understanding in quotes with the sarcastic bent to that, but to the children, the normal people, the one who know they need him. Because that's the key to the battle, to know that we need him and to trust him. Heavenly Father, thank you for granting to us this inerrant account of the Lord Jesus desiring us to come to him, to take his yoke, not the yoke of the religious leaders of that time or any time, not the yoke that's self-imposed, but to take the one where the burden is easy because the Lord Jesus doesn't intend to overload us. So thank you for that, and thank you for the the hope that gives us. Thank you for the trust we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.